Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders. We have Aaron Reinhardt on the line. Welcome on, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Ben. Aaron has been in information security uh, really for the majority of his career, starting back in the, the military with the Marines. And he's helped secure information for organizations like NASA, Randstad, and now United Health. He's founded multiple organizations and is actually the mind behind Chaos Slinger, which we'll dive deep into uh, you know, Chaos Slinger and how that can turn around your security program. Um, we're going to chat a lot about some misconceptions in underserved arenas and in information security. We're going to talk about testing security solutions and a technical versus GRC approach to, to InfoSec. So lots on the, uh, on the skillet today. First off, though, as always, let's hear your story. How'd you get into the profession? What are you most passionate about with it? How did I get into the profession? So I actually got into security. You know, you can actually argue that, you know, like just the, the field has not been around that long. I always find it funny when people say they've been in the industry for 25 years, when it didn't exist for 25 years. I argue that like I I used to cheat at video games. A lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of people that get into the field of security are, are technical computers. Start with cheating video games, then you realize you know cheating at video games ruins video games, right? But um, no, that got my curiosity going. You know, I could argue I, I made that argument to somebody recently, and I found out this is common ground actually. <laughs> but you know, I actually got started when I worked at NASA. Um, I was a uh, senior software developer, programmer uh, at NASA, and it sort of interested me, and I, I, that's, that's sort of where I, where I began. Great. Yeah, I guess what are some of the things that you keep you interested and keep you moving up in the, the profession? You know, I'm always curious. And like, so one of the things that, like, um, that I, I guess what I do differently is that it's, it's becoming more of a trend, which I've always kind of been a mentality of mine to, to not be a, somebody who says no. I mean, you hear that a lot now. Right, but it was—it's always been very little practice. I've always found a way to to say yes to something, right? To move it forward and, and be an enabler. And I guess another key aspect of that really drives me in that regard is—is is that like I'm generally a curious person about newer technologies and, and capabilities, but I'm really not a geek on it. I'm a geek on it, but I, I like the value that I can bring to engineering through my knowledge and security. I'm, I'm of the belief that the industry was born out of an engineering problem and that we are just now coming back to our roots. Okay. Yeah, I think we'll dive deeper into that here later on. Yeah, let's get things kicked off here. Talking about you know, some of the differences between breaches due to malicious activity versus breaches due to you know, human or, or technological error, I guess. Could you explain the difference and, and why? You know, why it's important that there are those two distinct differences. Well, you know what's funny is it's that so I talk about this a lot, obviously. It's honest to God, it's just not that interesting to talk about the, the stupid mistakes we make as humans, right? I mean, it's much more interesting to talk about the, 
the malware laterally traversing the network and the, and the Chinese sponsored attack groups and the dark net, the dark web, the, the APTs, the, you pick a problem that's headline worthy, right? But like, I mean, it's not a sexy, it's not a sexy proposition to talk about misconfiguration, human factors, human errors as part of data breach, as part of security incidents. But what's, uh, what's interesting is that as an industry one, we focus on it, we corral around it because it is interesting. It does make the field sexy, in my opinion. But like, if you look at the data, if you look at the data, and I argue more data, more research needs to be done in terms of root cause to a lot of these malicious and criminal attacks, is that like, um, how many of those attacks would have actually been successful had a misconfigured firewall, a misconfigured router or load balancer or our gapping control coverage been discovered before that attack occurred. I wonder what is the where the root of where we came at this problem is that if you look at the Ponymar report year after year, and actually look at several of the other reports, the Verizon DBIR, uh, as well as some of the other data breach data out there, the trend has actually been going on for about 10 years, right? That a majority of the, it just depends on how, you break, how the organization breaks down data. But if you look at uh, Podimon's report specifically, you'll see that like 47% of the, of the data breaches last year were caused due to malicious activity, criminal attacks, the, the state-sponsored hacker groups, the, that kind of stuff, right? But like actually what's, what's interesting though is that 53%, the larger half of the equation, was actually caused to human factor, misconfiguration, and system glitches, right? I mean, honestly, God, that's really not that interesting to talk about, right? But I wonder what I wonder what the relationship really is between that and the malicious activity. That is where the research needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I never hear anything about anything related to, oh, you know, outside of end users clicking on something they shouldn't. But yeah, I feel like that would fall in the malicious bucket, would it not? Well, it's somewhere in between, right? I mean, when we focus on human factors in the field, it is typically the malicious factor, uh, malicious angle of that, meaning phishing, you know, uh, or, or there is uh, another one would be uh, insider threats. You know, actually, in my opinion, the, the worst, some of the worst insider threats are actually the unintentional misconfiguration, right? I mean, like, we don't actively, as an industry, look for that problem, right? I mean, how often... If people are honest and look at their own incident data, how often does a misconfigured, fat finger, or incorrect firewall will bring down data centers, applications, product services, just because they had a number wrong or that uh, somebody filled out the form wrong? Or humans make mistakes anytime we touch something. It could be whether the code we wrote. It could be the clickety-clack-clack-clack on the portal that we were making the change on. It could be a uh, patch pick your poison there, but like anytime we touch something, we introduce the possibility of error and failure. But failure actually is very, very important. Humans, we need failure. Like our systems are no different. They they need to learn from their failures. But if we ignore it, we are slowly drifting into, into failure and into the unknown. Yeah, very interesting. Do you think that there's going to be some technology or some products that are going to help bring that down? I, I guess might be putting the cart in front of the horse, seeing as we don't have, it sounds like a strong amount of research done and whatnot. But 
you know, do you think that there's going to be a product or is there a product out there that can you know, cut down on percentage of, of human error? Yeah, so I, I know. So chaos engineering as a domain, as a practice, as a methodology is really hits at the heart of that. Uh, but it's only the beginning, in my opinion. And I do know of some things coming to the realm of what you're speaking to solutions wise. And folks can reach out to me or you and if they want to talk about that. But there, that, that's really what I did with Chaos Slinger is I, I put a stick in the ground, right? The, te- the, the team and I, we basically said, okay, we're going to give this a shot. We're going we're gonna to see what this looks like and trying to instrument for failure in a system by causing it, essentially. Now, what's funny is that people will say about Chaos Engineering, they will say that, aren't you really, aren't you introducing failure? Well, not really. Actually, if the failure we're identifying uh, already existed. Right, so that failure, if I introduced it, if you could not detect it, you were assuming that you could before I did that, right? Like, so did I introduce the failure, or did I identify something you did not know? Does that make sense? Engineering mm-hmm. in general is is representing is really it's a provocative concept, and I find that I talked to Colton Andrews and and uh, Bruce Wong and some of the some of the big names like Casey Rosenthal in in chaos engineering. And, and a lot of times that when we talk about chaos engineering, like we battle the name, right? More than, more than anything. A lot of folks don't realize actually, it's really about instrumentation of failure. And furthermore, uh, it's about attacking a problem that's emerging, right? Uh, a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, a lot of your consumer retail type of, of unicorn services, LinkedIn, you've got Facebook, Google, they see this problem as a reality. But like the world of microservices and distributed computing is making making it next to impossible to understand how our systems are working, right? If you think about it, the world of distributed computing, you have, let's say you have a, a service, let's call it a healthcare service, right? And it has everything from claims, billing, payments, an API for each one of those, uh, maybe Rx, right? Like uh, it's not just one API, it is probably... You know, there are probably four or five uh, of that API running for performance reasons and throughput. Uh, there are also probably service discovery components to ensure when new APIs spin up, spin down. You may also have canary deployments and blue-green blue, blue green deployments. So you may have anywhere from 20 to 30 of one API running at a given point in time. You've got things spinning up and changing all the time. That's just one API. Magnify that by four or five. You've got 150 APIs. They're communicating back and forth with each other. They're also communicating with third-party services like maybe a payments from Wells Fargo or a payment gateway from PayPal or, or pick, pick your poison there. But you've got these things that are just these plates are spinning all over the place, right? How do you know what your system is doing? Furthermore, when we're designing stateful security in a stateless world, how do we know that there's a feedback loop from that system environment to our security control to know how well those controls are operating. So it's a problem set that the industry, there's an article I released uh, today that sort of talks a bit about the problem, but as an industry in general, we're ill-prepared for this problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know you touched on it a little bit there, but what are some of the benefits of objective monitoring? Oh, okay, yeah. So so one of the things, uh, when I went down this path of trying to apply chaos engineering, some of the stuff that Netflix has done and Google and some of the other uh, major names in, in chaos. But like I started, when I started applying to cybersecurity, I, I started questioning everything I knew. 
I mean, everything I've been taught, things like defense and depth, things like uh, logging and, and its response. I just started rethinking everything. And one of the things that I really noticed was the lack of objectivity in many of the processes and methods we use in the field. And specifically, we can talk about, let's talk about modern, right? Let's say you're collecting all kinds of uh, system event data, authentication data, data from tools. Maybe it's just more, it's more than logging data. Let's, let's take monitoring as a, as a wider domain uh, with testing and, and vulnerability data. So how do you know, like, the, the logging events, for example, that you're capturing, how do you know they're actually valuable? Because the nature by which a security incident occurs right? It's somewhat subjective. You don't know where it's coming from, when it's coming from, how it's coming from. You don't know whether or not it's a direct event or a cascading event. You're assuming that the things you're capturing empower you for that scenario. Well, that is a somewhat subjective approach. I argue with the chaos engineering approach, actually causing a direct event, right? If you're the one causing that event, you can determine whether or not it was a direct sort of event. It was a cascaded event. You can also you measure it throughout the life cycle of an incident. If you cause the event, you can actually determine the data you gathered. That Let's say, for example, a misconfigured firewall change, right? Let's say that you caused that event, right? You're actually able to make, to validate your assumptions about whether or not, let's say, the firewall captured good data, the, the network monitoring tool captured good data and threw it to a log tool. If the log tool was able to correlate the event based upon the time, that the event actually went to the SOC the SOC actually got alerted and had the context they needed to drive an incident, right? That that's uh, also that CERD, security response, was able to properly investigate and, and notify the teams that needed to, to you know, remediate the problem. So th- that's what I mean by being objective is that by actually causing the event, we can actually determine what was our problem? Was it, a, was it like a tools, the right tools, uh, the number of tools, the what, right skills? Do we have the right skills? Did we have enough people? Are, is there a problem with our process, our procedures, right? Uh, is there somewhere in the tool chain we have gaps? These are all things that are difficult to measure, grasp, or ascertain when you're constantly fighting a subjective fire drill. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. Definitely like an underserved way of going about, you know, seeing if your programs is actually working. So, you know, one, one thing that I'd love to know more about is, can you tell us more about your first time actually rolling out Chaos Slinger and what some of the long-term benefits were for actually leveraging this technique? So I will tell you in general that like, uh, with chaos engineering as a concept, as a discipline, and even as applied with chaos slinger, is that things really don't work the way you thought they did, right? So when yeah. that is actually the most common uh, response from people when people get started in chaos engineering is, oh, okay, that's how that works. Well, uh, huh? How is it ever really working? <laughs> or like, or, uh, man, I didn't know it worked that way. You know, but that's not necessarily, I mean, that, that's a good and a bad response. It's good that you realize that. But, like, how many people are just assuming the way they designed something three years ago is still how it operates, right? And that's really sort of what we came up with is that, like, certain things, like, let's say, for example, you conduct a game day exercise. It's a core tenet, core practice in chaos engineering. Uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about chaos engineering. Let me just preface this, is that people think that you run it in production. That is a goal. 
that is a maturity milestone with chaos engineering. It is not where you start, right? You start with, you know, what's funny is I actually call security chaos engineering. I kind of, I sort of rebranded to try to get rid of the, the sexiness of it. And I rebranded as experimentation, right? And the way I break down uh, instrumentation is that security instrumentation is broken down into two, two areas, testing and experimentation. Testing is the assessment or validation of an already known thing, a CVE, a vulnerability in the wild, a zero day, things that we know about, right, that we go in looking to validate, right? Now, experimentation is really rooted in the scientific method meaning that we, we document what we believe to be the current state, how we think it works, right? And what we do is we, we build a hypothesis. If I were to bring down said firewall or a cause of misconfiguration, I believe that uh, we will be able to remediate within an hour or we'll be able to detect it within an hour, we'll be able to remediate within an hour and a half and we'll be back up and operating uh, or maybe that the system never goes down uh, that we feel gracefully. You make a, an educated guess, right, a hypothesis, and then you test it. The game day exercise is where you come up with sort of your documentation of the current state, where you come up with your hypothesis, how you think it works, right? And, and also where you test it. So you do your planning exercise with the game day planning, and then you, um, you socialize what you plan on doing with your management. There's some great documentation from Gremlin. Uh, they're the first ever chaos engineering company out there uh, uh, on their site on how to get started doing some of this stuff, uh, but like and how to socialize it to your management, which you should do. But when you, when you get started in the game, the exercise are typically anywhere from two to three or four hours long. Uh, during that exercise, what will happen is that for a period of time, usually about two, two hours of that period, uh, you'll have a, a couple different teams in, in the same room. And depending upon what your approach is, some people do this differently, but you will tell everyone exactly what you're going to do uh, for the experiment, right? That, okay, here was our hypothesis. Here was our current state model. Uh, and here's what we're going to do, right? Now, a senior sort of engineer will make that change. And, and the actual, like your monitoring teams is a response. Maybe your IT is a response, folks. You'll have uh, the, the product engineering team there as well. And will actively try to figure out and validate the hypothesis, right? That's what the experiment is for. And the exercise is time box, like I said, two hours long or so. Uh, and after that, you conduct a, a thorough post-incident review. Other people call it a post-mortem exercise. Uh, some people don't like post-mortem because uh, in some cases, nobody really died, but um, it can happen, right? So, but like, this is the time you sit down and you really talk about, okay, let's be honest. Did we really catch it like we thought we did? You know, what did we observe? How did it work? Did it work the way we thought it did, right? What could we do better, right? Like how maybe we should uh, maybe we should try to add additional log enhancers, or maybe we should, you know, maybe we need to reconfigure the Solar Winds tool, or maybe we need to throttle up the log level on the. It, it's it's an exercise in depth uh, around these types of events that you could you It's a controlled test versus an incident when you do a post incident review. You're only working with the data you have versus already already knowing what caused it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely does. How were you able to get management to sign off on allowing you to do this? Well, there's several different cases you can make when you do this, but it's about trying to drive a better, a high level quality 
right? Trying to drive out a quality product, right? But also trying to drive out uh, assumptions and how we think things work. There's also the business case of the fact that you can validate your assumptions about your security controls, right? I assume that, you know, it's configured uh, to my, my logging tools are configured correctly. It's not only driving out the assumptions and the, the maybe that a vendor sold you uh, and, and measuring them or measuring your, just because you bought a product doesn't mean you have it configured correctly. You have the right coverage that, you know, a variety of different things can happen. But like you can measure that. So you can measure investments in some of the controls you make. It's also arguable that you're kind of sharpening the sword. You're making... Uh, you're monitoring better, right? Instead of logging terabytes and terabytes daily uh, to your security big data lake or your SIM, like you can actually maybe throttle down the noise to what's more valuable because you actually know that when you caught, when that event occurred, because you caused it, what was valuable, what wasn't. I mean, there's many benefits, right? Now let's, let's say a company's not, Fully committed to chaos engineering as a testing method, I guess. What are some other ways that a, a program can successfully monitor and test their security components? That's actually a good question and a good point I always like try, like to try to make that. When I talk about objectivity uh, and I talk about chaos engineering, security chaos engineering, I want to also make the point that like, all the other testing methodologies and monitoring that we do is still very important. Right, that's just table stakes, right? I mean, that's just we need to be doing that. You still need to be doing pen testing, red team testing, purple team testing, vulnerability scanning, right? The more data you have, data lacks an opinion. Data lacks a political motive and an agenda, right? Data brings data is the new gold. It brings context to a problem. It brings specificity to a problem. Um, and and I find it's often easier to work with data and, and explaining it and in purposes of remediation or driving quality than it is to conduct, I mean, risk assessments are valuable, but sometimes they're done in such a way where uh, you're asking someone a question about their system. And really, you're really only evaluating that person's ability to answer the question, not actually how effective, not whether, not actually assessing the system. You're asking somebody, you're assessing somebody's ability to answer a question, which is somewhat subjective. Uh, I, I argue that we have to get better at instrumenting the real thing at the, the, at the center of the problem. That makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm sure I answered yeah. the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's definitely helpful. Now, do you have any ideas on who you really should not attach to chaos engineering or chaos slinger? Well, so if you already know the thing that you're about ready to evaluate and test just doesn't work, right? I mean, you're really not so you're not trying to validate something you already know to be true or false, right? The idea is trying to derive new information. You know it's broken already. There's not even a whole lot of value in testing. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Check it out. Chaos Slinger, Chaos Engineering. Go on to Aaron's LinkedIn. He's got some cool articles there. Sounds like the uh, CISO at LinkedIn is talking about some similar testing methodologies today as well, huh? Yeah, no, I uh, saw I saw uh, Corey's um, uh, talk today at SRECon, which I really wish I was there. Um, he's talking about security in the SRE. That's actually I just released an article today on RedHatsOpenSource.com. Check that out. Um, also, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Reinhardt. Well, cool. So let's let's talk a little bit about the profession. You know, one thing that 
you and I had spoke about previously that I thought was really interesting and something that I see from my seat quite often is really the difference between a technical security professional versus a GRC-focused security professional and building security programs based on a two very different uh, ways of looking at security. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is the difference and what are the positives and, and negatives of each technique? So sure, definitely. Um, I also want to preface this the fact that I think both are very valuable and both are needed. Um, I, I am, like I mentioned before, a a proponent of the fact that we began out of an engineering problem. My perspective is that um, one of the reasons why com- compliance had such a rise in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years uh, was the fact that those best engineering practices that become part of the uh, information security are really just reflections of best practices in existing fields of engineering. I guess IAM, identity management, uh, are access privileges really a security thing? Or is that really good best practices? Or is, um, from a data center perspective, is isolating a network or segmenting a network with a VLAN, is that really a security thing? Or is that really just good network design? The problem was is that folks just either they didn't know they should be doing that or they just flat out weren't doing it. It was causing these problems that caused the creation of a criminal market due to the fact that people weren't doing these things, which drove the need for more and more compliance to ensure that certain industries, the sensitive industries, especially like your financial industries, healthcare, government, you know, as well as many others, sort of drove the need to ensure people were doing these things to protect their customers and their, their, their shareholders. My argument is, Ben, is that if you're doing good engineering, if you are focusing on driving the next era of quality, looking at really your products and services, how you're building things, looking for misconfiguration, error, failure, using failure as a tool to build, not a weapon to destroy. If you're focusing on those sort of, you can actually be ahead of compliance. I mean, how long did it take NIST to create a document on, I'm not, not knocking on NIST, that, I, they're a great source of, of documentation. My point is that we looked at that as a body of, our shining light, but like they were four to five years late to the container game, right? I mean, like how, you need to be actively looking at your engineering, focusing on that. Because I believe if you're focused on good product engineering, good product delivery, and good engineering practice, you can actually be well ahead of compliance when it comes to these new technologies, be secure, right? And then compliance just becomes more of a documentation exercise at that point, documenting what you're already doing. Does that make sense? Like you, you're not waiting, you're, you're driving at the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So it almost sounds like look at it from a problem solving standpoint, look at it from a technology standpoint, and kind of just make sure that your solutions check the boxes at the end of the day. Exactly. And it really empowers the folks to try to fight the good fight from the audit perspective and protect the organization. If you're already focused on those things, you, those folks are empowered to do their job more effectively as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that makes a, a ton of sense. It seems like from a development standpoint, from a thinking out of the box standpoint, from creating unique solution standpoint, that you're forcing yourself to be in this regulatory box, we might be stagnating some of those ad- advancements. Is that going a little too far or what do you think there? 
Well, now what you also end up doing with shifting any focus this way is, is you end up focusing on the reason why you exist, which is the products, services that the organization, agency, a business that you support. I mean, you end up focusing more on the engineering and the quality versus checking boxes and validation of that you're doing things. You're focusing more on the doing and the delivery of the quality engineering. Does that make sense versus versus just trying to catch up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really interesting. So, what what is that? Where does that leave us? I guess it definitely sounds like a shift in overall thinking. But you know, from somebody that wants to get into the profession and become a leader of security initiatives, do you think that it's more advantageous then to take classes or get a college degree in, in a you know, computer science arena or you know, start out on a systems engineering side of the house? I guess, what does that mean for people that want to leverage some of those ideas and become you know, very effective as a security leader? What I will say, that's a great question. Uh, what I will say is learn to code, right? Even if you're 30 years in the business, 20 years in the business, coding and software engineering with the idea of having an organization where everyone can can write code no matter what function is that people can go from idea or improvement idea whether that be like a new code new application automating email automating files whatever business function you're doing you can if every employee or every person in an organization can go from idea to product on their own you collapse the model what's great is that in a world of software engineering and if software engineering is driving everything. I think it's important to, to focus on security, but security was never the point, right? It was never the point of, we're not in the business for the sake of security. We're in the business to drive quality, drive value, to drive products and services forward for the organizations we represent. So writing code. Writing code builds empathy with the world of software engineering. It teaches you more about the way things are built. It also gives you the tools in which to build uh, and improve things on your own. So I think writing code is fundamental. Actively, what I look for in, in partners I work with and is really getting down to the nuts and bolts, but that's where also the creativity comes in. Awesome thoughts. Well, let's hop into overrated and underrated, and then we'll let you get out of here. Got a couple for you. Uh, interested to see what you, you think. So first off, outsourcing penetration tests, overrated or underrated? Outsourcing pen tests. Um, I um, I think it can be underrated. I think there's there's a lot of bias in, in internal pen testing. There's a lot of um, th- there can be a lot of human bias in the process. Human bias, organizational bias. I think outsourcing testing, uh, pen testing, is a great approach. That's my opinion. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So you know, one of the the arguments that I've heard on this podcast quite a bit about internal pen testing. Well, I guess the the difference between the the two and and where the value lies is if you were to do something internally, they already kind of understand the vulnerabilities and are able to identify those as potential challenges. And then you get you know an outsourced pen test, and some of the deliverables are like, oh, hey, here's the vulnerabilities that we noticed, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we were already aware of that. So, you, know, I guess, what are your thoughts to to that? Well, you know, it's it's not a it's not a silver bullet. It's not a um, it's not a one one cog. It's not a system. It's it's the overall machine and engine of which how you run your program. I think there uh, the tests should be objective if you're going to do them. And I think either way, you're spending the money on it. 
And I think that um, I think that folks need to be doing a greater amount of tests and automated tests and validation internally. Uh, I think there are other types of tests. I think pen testing is is due for an upgrade or a, in general as a field. The advent of continuous delivery, when it comes to infrastructure type of uh, pen testing and things like that, there's still some value there. When it comes to uh, the world where people are moving away from their own infrastructure and buying as a commodity, it's going to be more about software engineering and software delivery. Uh, it gets a little more complicated when it comes to uh, pen testing, especially when people are delivering 10 times a day. Uh, that, that means the application is changing 10 times a day. You've got multiple versions running all the time. Pen testing is still valuable, but it's got to be able to evolve with that new problem set. So I argue that you know you need skill sets that are fresh that can attack those problems. I think if you're getting results from an outsourced pen test that are not valuable, that you should reconsider your contract with them uh, and uh, and the approach you take to pen testing with those folks. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I, I hate to keep beating this up, but you know, another thing that I've, I've heard as being a, a struggle is that when a company is doing a pen test that they ask, hey, please don't you know, have a, a blue team on this or have your incident response team on this to you know, try and fix it while we're doing it. Let us kind of you know, weep through. Is that experience that you've you had as well or, or have you had your teams actually trying to uh, do their job while the pen test is, is going on? I think not having the blue team not actually doing their job, that makes, to me, that's, that's a fake scenario, right? I mean, I want to, you know what I mean? Like things need to be objective and as real world as possible when doing a pen test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and that, that for me, I guess just sitting here listening kind of goes back to the value of, of chaos linger. When I give a, a talk about chaos engineering and security, I know when someone's paying attention, when they ask me the question about what, what how is this different than uh, purple team testing or red team testing? I love that. Question. I actually have an article coming out in, I think probably two or three weeks called uh, red fish, blue fish, purple fish, chaos fish. It's kind of, a, <laughs> kind of a, I, I got a custom graphic. It's awesome. Um, That's cool. It's, it's kind of a play on the, the Dr. Seuss book, right? Sure. But it's about, you know, uh, the differences in sort of how we evolved to purple teaming from red versus blue, how the goals are different with it. But chaos engineering is not, it's not about getting in. It's not about breaching someone or, or trying to exploit something. It's about making simple changes, right? Like you're trying to evaluate simple things like garbage in, garbage out when you're doing this kind of testing, right? Like if you're making six, seven, eight, nine, ten different changes because you're flipping things on and off and, and writing scripts and sending things and staging attacks, and th- it's hard to judge how effective something individually was with a control, mm-hmm. a mechanism, a system, a log. Like it, there's so much noise, right? Um, with chaos engineering, the goal is more it's more simple in nature. The scale starts very small, but the intention is is that once you validated the fact that your hypothesis was true, right, is you recreate that as an automated test. And that becomes a baseline. So there there are some very big differences between purple team testing and chaos uh, engineering. But I I think both fields drive a level of objective data and value that it gives more, it gives a security organization, a security leader, more information about how my system is really working versus 
uh, maybe what I've invested in or what I thought worked. As well as it gives the CIO, and in all honesty, it gives the CIO some data too. Like, hey, you know, um, you know, some of these investments are not paying off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, let, next one, let's uh, move right on to it. On a very broad stroke, black hats. Do we overrate them or underrate them? Black hats. Um, uh, that's a good question. Do we overrate them or underrate them? Um, I, re- I guess that's that to me that's somewhat subjective. Uh, I believe I believe it is underrated and overrated. Uh, I guess I can't get both, can I? Black hats. Um, I think in some cases they're overrated, but in some cases they're underrated. It just depends on the topic at hand or the, you know, like I think if some people, if you're underestimate, you never underestimate your opponent, right? Um, but also uh, a lot of uh, black hats are, are very successful because of low-hanging fruit. I mean, how many IPs are still out there on um, what's that site that shows you all the uh, exposed IPs on the internet? Super popular. For you. Oh, Shodan, Shodan, right? Okay. Shodan shows you like all the internet facing IPs. I mean, I mean, some, some, of, the, some of the stuff is just like low hanging fruit. When they find it, it's it's not really that difficult to exploit it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, it just depends on the scenario, on your level of preparation. It's preparation. <laughs> Favors, favors the victor, right? Yep, yep. No, I definitely hear you. I, I guess that came up via the data that you you shared about you know the forty seven versus fifty three percent, and um, you know if malicious activity driven by black hats is in the minority, yet we spend ninety five percent talking about that. I was curious yeah. if you thought that that would be overrated conversation or not, but it makes tons of sense. Well, I think in general, I think in general. It- it, it kind of is because we focus on it, but like, I, I guess it depends on when you look at the macro or micro level, is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I think sure. as an overall problem set, you know, I do think we need to focus more on the 53% when we really don't as an industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last one hands on technical security leadership. So I'm sp- speaking specifically to you know, individuals that are building teams and strategically leading security programs. You think that it's overrated or underrated that uh, they have strong te- hands-on technical abilities? Totally underrated. I I honestly believe. Uh, I think this is totally my opinion, right? I honestly think you're going to see the rise of the engineering-focused CISO. I really like uh, security programs, like for example, Atlassian. Atlassian openly exposes and talks about you know their security program, how they do things, even some of their data. They um, they have a, a policy about don't bleep or you can bleep me out I guess but don't fuck with the customer right and be transparent and open about uh, how they operate but I really like how they everyone in LR program their security program codes right everyone codes like they, when a vulnerability comes up it's not thrown over the fence to a product team it, the security engineering team actively works with SRE with um and with the product teams to actually fix it and remediate the problem like it's not it's not a back and forth it's not like oh i found this here's more work it's like hey i found this here's what i think we can do about it i think another trend you're going to see in the same space as i think you're going to see and this is something that like the the linkedin uh CISO is talking about today at srecon uh i don't know exactly what he's talking about because he hasn't talked about it yet <laughs> but like it's something i'm sort of curious about is i think you see a rise of the 
of security as being a function in SRE, uh, site reliability engineering, as well as maybe some of the site reliability engineering functions coming more into the world of architecture and security and engineering. Um, I honestly feel SRE is a very, very important function, but I think uh, you're going to see a driver towards uh, SRE and security in the next three or four years. I think that's an emerging field. I think it's an emerging focus for senior senior engineering, senior architecture folks to focus on because our SREs have the right focus. Very cool. Okay. Awesome. That's ex- exciting. Well, hey, really appreciate having you on. So Thank much you. valuable insight. Thanks a ton, Aaron. Thanks for having me. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.